0: Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of the Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. We're going to take a look at the scripture that's found in the Gospel of John in chapter one. So I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word and uh, read along on the screen or you can read on your own devices. Uh, John chapter 1, beginning at verse 43 and ending at verses 50, at verse 51. Now, before this, Andrew and Peter had become disciples of Jesus. So that's where this uh, passage picks up. The next day, that is after Andrew, Andrew and Peter began following Jesus, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and then told him, We have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in which there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Well, then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, well, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of God for the people of God. Hey, you remember it very well. Good, You may be seated. So, in this passage, the initial answer to our question of what comes after baptism has something to do with discipleship. After Jesus was baptized, one of the first things he did was start gathering his disciples around him. So, as Andy suggested, as we lean into our baptism and we learn about what that identity that we were given at that time means, that means that we're supposed to take on the role of Jesus' disciples. So, we're going to talk about some of the basics of who or what a disciple is this morning. Literally, the word disciple in the Greek language, which is the New Testament was written in, uh, a disciple means student or follower. Now, in the ancient world that Jesus lived in and for centuries before, there weren't formal schools like we have. They weren't funded by the government or even privately. Um, So if you were wealthy, uh, you might have a tutor who was probably a slave and was brought into your household to teach you uh, specifically. But for most common folks, uh, you didn't have formal schooling. Now, Jewish children may have gone to synagogue school and learned some of the scriptures, but that was about the extent of their formal education. If you really wanted to learn something, you usually had to find a teacher and then attach yourself to that teacher and follow him around in his life and listen to his teachings and observe his way of life. Um, If you're a fortunate, a teacher might invite you to follow him. And this is the case that we have here today in our passage. Um, We read in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So the student-teacher relationship is established right here. Um, he's, Jesus calls Philip and asks him to become one of his disciples. He reaches out to Philip and says, follow me. So that is kind of the, the following the pattern of the ancient world. Jesus is gathering disciples, and in the case of Philip, he approached Philip first and asked Philip to follow him. So, and then in verse 49, you can see more of this student-teacher relationship. Nathanael calls Jesus rabbi, which is the Jewish word for teacher. So, in the ancient world, students or followers not only learned from teachers' words, but also by observing their lifestyle. Uh, they, They observed, they lived with, and followed the teacher, you know, day and night, and became part of their little circle of disciples or followers. So in that sense, Jesus is doing what lots of other teachers and rabbis did in that time. But then, at the end of our passage, in verses 50 and 51, we see something or hear something, read something that Jesus said that was not particularly usual for teachers in that day. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, talking to Nathanael here. You will see greater things than that. I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of man you 'll see greater things than that, so it 's not your typical student teacher follower rabbi kind of relationship here. Jesus invites or instructs Nathaniel to follow him, which is simple enough, but it 's also deep. This continuous, constant physical proximity to the teacher where Jesus uh, and Nathaniel can be, can be together. Nathaniel can observe and hear and see Jesus' life up close and personal. But what Nathanael will see more than that is more than just some realization of a a nationalistic vision. You know, Nathanael calls him the king of Israel, calls Jesus the king of Israel. Well, Jesus says, yes, I might be the new king, the Messiah, but there's more to it than what you're thinking of right now. And in this little comment here, Jesus talks about this uh, angels, heaven open and angels ascending and descending. He's referring back to an Old Testament story that Nathaniel would certainly have been familiar with, where, I don't know if you're familiar with Jacob's ladder, Jacob's dream. Jacob, one of the patriarchs, one of the, old, the fathers of the Israel's, uh, Israel's faith, had a dream and he saw this ladder coming down from heaven and angels were going up and down. And the meaning for Jacob was that God was going to be with him. There was an opening you might say, in the window that separated heaven and earth. And Jacob got to see the opportunity for God and God's angels to be communicating or um, uh, fellowshipping with Jacob at that time. Jesus is referring to that story to try to get across the point to Nathanael that in him, in Jesus himself, the separating barrier between heaven and earth has been opened and there's going to be a connection, an intersection between the reality that God lives in and the reality that we live in here on earth. So it's gonna be more than just glimpses of divine insight that Nathaniel gets from Jesus. He's going to see Jesus himself, who is what it looks like when heaven and earth are open to each other. Jesus promised, basically, if you follow me, you'll be watching and experiencing what it's like when heaven and earth are open to each other. And that is the core of discipleship. That's what Jesus was trying to tell him following Jesus was going to be like. Following Jesus and becoming like him are not the goal or the end in themselves, you see. Discipleship is the means to the end of living out God's mission, of reestablishing the relationship that God wants between his reality and our reality. He's joining together the two spheres of existence that we live in. Our world and God's world, and Jesus is the intersection and the union of those two, and that is what discipleship to Jesus is going to look like for Nathaniel. So those are the, that's the basic core of discipleship. Now, what it looks like in real life as we kind of live it out, um, well, I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Basically, looking at some of the myths that we have about discipleship, and then hopefully maybe. Uh, offering a couple suggestions for correcting some of those myths. Um, The word disciple, as I mentioned, means student or follower. And it occurs in the New Testament 269 times. The word Christian, on the other hand, is found three times. So disciple and discipleship is a big deal in the New Testament. And the point here is that it's not merely a difference of word choice. Uh, A disciple seems to be a special or a distinctive kind of person in the New Testament. All the promises that we find in the Bible that are directed towards us humans uh, assume this kind of life, this special kind of life of discipleship. In fact, all these promises aren't even realistic or uh, worth considering and they don't make sense unless you're thinking from the perspective of a disciple. So discipleship is built into what it, the New Testament calls following Jesus. Um, Some other terms that you might hear that kind of mean the same thing as discipleship are Christian formation or spiritual formation. Sometimes the word transformation is used. Uh, holiness or Christ-likeness those are all roughly synonymous with being a disciple or discipleship. Today, I'll use mostly the words disciple and discipleship, but occasionally I'll maybe reference some of these other terms. So our first myth is that discipleship is optional. Or maybe, for an advanced kind of christian that 's a myth, and I think it 's based largely or significantly in part because we might have kind of this idea of Jesus being two different people. Jesus is our Savior, and Jesus is our Lord. Sometimes we talk about that in two different terms and almost becomes like it 's two different people. but Jesus is one person, Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we follow him as ones who are saved and who are following in his way, who are calling him our Lord. So it's basic and it's foundational to being a Christian to be a disciple. It's not a separate level of existence, of Christian existence. Uh, Jesus commissioned his first disciples, as we read at the very end of Matthew's gospel, and he also commissions us to go into all the world and to make disciples. He didn't say go into all the world and make converts, He said, make disciples. So yes, conversion is maybe the first step, but we are expected to go on from being simply a convert to being a follower or a disciple of Jesus. Um, So basic basic is discipleship to being a Christian and to being in part of the kingdom of God that it is the normal standard of life for Christians. It's not optional. The disciple of Jesus is not a deluxe or heavy-duty model. It's just the basic kind of Christian that we are all supposed to be. Second myth is that discipleship is a difficult and joyless drudgery. It's terrible. It's work. It takes effort. Um, It may not even be possible in this life. Um, It probably doesn't help that we have that the word disciple means student because you have this school student imagery kind of thing, and a lot of people, you know, that's not really one of the things that brings joy into our lives, um, going to school and being a student. But Jesus said... My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so being a follower of Jesus is not meant to be a drudgery or a heavy burden. It is something that we can accept with joy. Following Jesus and becoming more and more like him is the way to true and full personhood as God intended us to be. It's kind of like the narrow way that Jesus talked about, but it leads to fulfillment, joy, peace, and knowing that God loves us and we can rest assured that God will always love us. And it brings out what God intended humans to be, anyway, with all the layers of selfishness and insecurity and deceit, anger, and the power-seeking that layers that have accumulated over the years of our lives and over the millennia in humankind. So it's, it is possible, but it's not supposed to be a drudgery. And, and, and Jesus said, it is an easy thing to do when you are following me. It becomes uh, a natural expression of who you are as you're becoming more and more like me. Our third myth is that discipleship just kind of happens. If you're a Christian long enough, you'll develop into a disciple. Um, that's kind of, there's actually kind of two, two myths built into that one. Uh, the first sub-myth, uh, I might say, is that um, this happens just kind of by the course of natural events. The longer we're uh, a Christian, the more we'll become like Jesus, Um, It kind of develops, you know, just naturally. We don't have to do anything about it. Um, A second myth is kind of similar to that, um, but it doesn't happen slowly and gradually. It may happen by a sudden lightning strike of the Holy Spirit or something, some huge experience that we might have. Um, In either one of these cases, though, we are being passive, and that's not the way discipleship works. We are expected to be actively involved in the life of discipleship. Uh, we shouldn't want to o- not only be merciful and kind and patient or forgiving people, but we need to be making plans to be those, that kind of a person. We put on the new person that, that Paul talked about, the putting on those new clothes that uh, we receive in baptism. We do that by regular activities that are in our power to do. And we become what we could not become by direct effort. So spiritual disciplines and practices are one way that we do that. These are indirect actions that help us to become the kind of person that we couldn't be by our own direct efforts. Now let me give you a couple of analogies um, or illustrations for that. Um, I'll avoid, this is very similar to what you would do as you were becoming a musician. Since I'm not musical, I'm going to switch it to a sports analogy, okay? Um, It's one that I'm a little more familiar with. Um, you might be a good athlete. You might have uh, good reflexes. You might be strong. You might have strength and quickness. Um, you might have good eyesight, good hand-eye coordination. <clears throat> but if you're going to become a professional baseball player, that's not enough. You, those natural gifts that you have have to be developed. You have to spend hours and hours uh, taking grounders taking grounders in the field. You have to practice in the batting cage hours and hours. You have to refine your batting stance. You have to know exactly how to move and position yourself in the field. All of that takes practice and drilling and repetitive motion, so you have that muscle memory. Then your natural gifts of strength and quickness and agility can combine with your practice and allow you to become a good baseball player. If you take a, just a good athlete off the street and set him in front of a major league pitcher, they're gonna strike out within three strikes because they haven't practiced and developed the skills that they need. So when we're put on the spot, if our anger flares up at someone cutting us off in traffic, um, our response, our natural response is going to be to get angry. If we don't wanna become an angry person, we have to practice in the other smaller parts of life being patient and kind with people so that when we do get cut off in traffic, our more natural response, because we've practiced beforehand, how to control our anger, then we won't flare up in anger at other people. Does that analogy help make sense at all? It's we're practicing doing things before we're put on the spot, basically. So before you go into a concert or a recital, you have to do, put in your practice hours on the piano or some other instrument. Um, you can't just sit down. Well, maybe Mozart could, but most people can't just sit down and play a, a concert or anything. You have to learn the notes. You have to learn music. You have to play. That's what spiritual disciplines in our lives do. They help us practice being the kind of persons that Jesus wants us to be, and that we want to be as well. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul said, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it is God working in our lives as we put forth the effort to practice or follow spiritual disciplines that then will allow us to become the kind of people who will respond in a Christ-like way when the heat is on. Um, Some of the standard spiritual disciplines, um, you might categorize into like two different clumps. One that kind of work on the inner person and others that work on our relationship to the outer world and to other people. So for example, solitude and silence Prayer and study, those might be some of the inner disciplines that we can practice that would help us become more Christ-like. Corporate worship or service with other people uh, or confession and accountability are some of those spiritual disciplines or practices that involve interactions with other people. Both categories are necessary and will help us to become the kind of disciples that Jesus wants us to be. Now, I've just told you that you need to put forth, or we all need to put forth effort. We need to put some kind of, take, take some kind of action and not just sit there like a lump and let, God, let God's grace work on us. Um, we do have to put forth some kind of effort. Um, another aspect of this is that it does, that effort costs us something. It costs us time, uh, effort, concentration, intention, willingness, um, But becoming a disciple of Christ, that is one of the truths that Jesus warned us about. We have to take up our cross to follow him. On the one hand, his yoke is easy, yeah, but we also take up our cross. It's one of those paradoxes of the Christian life. Um, But we do, there's going to be at some point where we have to forfeit some things in our lives in order to become a follower of Jesus. The easy yoke of Jesus is a cross-shaped yoke, and it calls for self-sacrifice at times, but that yoke also brings us the peace, the freedom, the joy, the hope, and the love that God is wanting to uh, grow within us as disciples. Okay, the fourth myth that we want to talk about, it kind of follows naturally from what I've just talked about, and that is, well, isn't discipleship kind of the same thing as salvation by works? Aren't you trying to earn your salvation that way? Based, I think, on maybe a misunderstanding of what grace is or how it works in our lives, Um, discipleship doesn't replace God's grace. In fact, grace is not opposed to our effort or our actions. Um, It's actually what it's opposed to is earning God's favor. But putting forth effort is not the same thing as trying to earn God's favor. God uh, reaches out to us first. As as we noticed in uh, our scripture passage, it was Jesus who reached out to Philip, right? Jesus found Philip. So Jesus makes the first move towards us; he initiates the relationship, but we are expected to respond. That's our responsibility: is to respond in kind with action on our part. Um, so, if we're asking, "Well, am I going to have to do something?" Well, the answer is yes, but that's not earning God's favor or our salvation. That is merely cooperating with God's grace that He's already given to us when He calls us. So, as Andy said last week, discipleship is simply living out our baptism. Um, Which and that baptism already proclaims God's unconditional love for us and acceptance by us. Remember, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about God's love, okay? So Jesus initiates our call to discipleship. We respond by acting in the way that he gave us. Now, here's one of the more helpful ways that I've learned um, from Dallas Willard. He's an expert, or he was. He passed away a few years ago, um, about discipleship and spiritual disciplines And he created or came up with this illustration that he calls the golden triangle of spiritual growth. And in your worship folders, you'll see it. I think we have it on the screen too, maybe. Uh, In your worship folder, it might be the gray triangle. I'm sorry about that. But, you know, color ink is expensive. So um, the golden triangle of spiritual growth um, works in three different areas. And they all intersect or interact with each other. The first one is the ordinary events of our daily lives. Um, The things that happen to us, our relationships with our kids or our friends, our co-workers, uh, the things that we encounter, things that life throws at us, those are the daily, uh, ordinary events of daily life. Jesus was just like us in many ways, most ways, in fact. Um, He grew up with brothers and sisters. He had to learn how to get along with them. He had to obey his parents. Um, He had to be patient with disciples that followed him and maybe misunderstood him. He was lied about, uh, he was uh, um, violently opposed, he was persecuted. All of those things that Jesus experienced, we experience in one form or another as well. So Jesus knows what it's like to live an ordinary kind of life. The key in spiritual growth is to accept those as opportunities for spiritual growth, to grow in our discipleship in following Jesus and learning how to respond as Jesus did when those things happened to him. So that's one component of our spiritual life. It's just the daily events, ordinary events of our daily lives. The second uh, element here is the action of the Holy Spirit. That could be at the top of your triangle, maybe. The action of the Holy Spirit is required. <clears throat> Remember what we said? Uh, we are responding to God's grace, and God's grace comes to us through the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit leads us and guides us, uh, points out areas in our life where maybe we have places to grow, where we can learn to become more like Christ, and the Holy Spirit prof, um, offers us and provides that grace that we need to be able to do those kinds of things that we can't do by our own direct effort. So when we take <clears throat> the ordinary events of daily life <clears throat> and use the grace that the Holy Spirit gives us and the guidance and the, and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, then uh, we combine that with the third part of the triangle, and that is the planned disciplines, the planned uh, spiritual disciplines that I just mentioned. So when we practice responding to the ordinary events of our daily lives, the Holy Spirit will take that and help us to become more and more like Christ. So those three elements as they all work together and they all have to be involved. You can't use you can't just take two one or two of them. All three of them are part of this formula for spiritual growth. The daily events, ordinary events of our daily lives, the guidance and strength of the Holy Spirit, and then what our part is <clears throat> of practicing or following the spiritual disciplines will help us become the kind of disciple that Jesus wants us to be. So <clears throat> as we practice here together in, at Emmaus Road Church, um, I want us to maybe point out just a few opportunities and places for us to be able to put that triangle, of, that golden triangle to work. Um, first of all, let me give a, maybe a thumbnail description, uh, definition of what I call discipleship or spiritual uh, formation. Um it's the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of the world. So there's three major ingredients there. Discipleship is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of the world. <clears throat> the first part is important, it's a process. We, like I mentioned before, we can't expect for us to instantly become just like Jesus. Um it's a process. Our life unfolds. Things, happens in our li- things happen in our lives. Um, we respond to new situations in different ways. We have to learn how to do that. It's a lifelong process that takes us a while. So we can't expect instant perfection um, or holiness. It is something that unfolds in our lives as we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit and practice our spiritual disciplines. So it is a process. The second part, being conformed to the image of Christ, Um, that is our model, that is our goal, that is what we are trying to be shaped like. That is Jesus, the image of Jesus. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that we are contemplating the Lord's glory, and as we do that, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So that, again, brings back together the fact that God is at work in our lives through the Holy Spirit, shaping us transforming us to become like Jesus we're being shaped into the image of Jesus so that is that is our goal or our end there and well that's not our I'm sorry I misspoke that is the means to the end for serving the world for the sake of the world that's the third component process of being conformed in the image of Christ for the sake of the world as disciples of Jesus we are part of God's project of renewing the world This renewal, however, is not the effect of being a disciple. It's not the life of discipleship itself, that is. The mission naturally flows from our life as we're being shaped to be like Christ. All it takes to fulfill Christ's purpose on earth is the quality of life that he makes real in our lives and in the lives of our other disciples. So for the sake of the world, we are being shaped into Jesus' image through this process of spiritual formation or discipleship. So the whole end goal is for us to live in and be part of God's renewed world that he's making. And that's, he started that with Jesus and especially brought it, to, brought it to fruition in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's that resurrected life that we are living right now as disciples. So at Emmaus Road, that looks something like what we have on the very front of our worship folder. That is the second line. I think it's the second line. We are pursuing Christ as king. Nathaniel proclaimed Jesus to be the king of Israel. Now earlier, Jesus had said, look, Nathanael, that's a true Israelite if I ever saw one. So as being described as an Israelite, when Nathanael says, you are the king of Israel, he was basically saying, Jesus, you are my king. And we are trying to do the same thing at Emmaus Road. We are pursuing or following Jesus as our king as well, following in Nathanael's footsteps, you might say. And that looks like, um, well, for one thing, um, life groups. That is one of the areas in where we have interactions with other Christians at Emmaus Road, and we are helping shape and form ourselves into Christ likeness through our interactions with each other. In our life groups, we read the passage, we discuss the sermon, we share our lives, we pray for each other and with each other. That is one way of living out a life of discipleship here at Emmaus Road. Um, if you're not part of a life group, you can talk to me as director of discipleship. I also lead the life group ministry. And we have one, two, three, four functioning life groups, and we can find a place for you in one of those if you're not involved and if you want to be. That's a key element in being shaped as a disciple here at Emmaus Road. Another opportunity is our family resource events. Um, is, there's one scheduled, I think. Isn't there one? Something in the worship folder about one coming up not too long ago, far away. Um, we want to help equip families to be places where discipleship can happen in the home. And learning about how to be a good parent, a good Christian parent, is one of the things that we do in family resource events. Lots of different opportunities there for us to get plugged in and find out how to lead and live as a Christian family. Um, I mentioned that one of the spiritual practices or disciplines are kind of outward Uh, Focused, and that is through the life of service. Our impact ministry offers lots of opportunities for that. We have faith family hospitality, where we are helping serve homeless families with an organization here in Fort Collins, and we are participants in that. Uh, Getting involved in that by helping provide meals or some childcare, those kinds of things happen with faith family hospitality. That's one way for us to be shaped as disciples is to serve our world. Renee's Hope, our uh, monthly uh, meals for the homeless, is another way for us to get involved and develop our own discipleship muscles in serving the community. Uh, We have a game night every so often with the folks uh, next door at the nursing home, at the retirement home. Um, Any of those areas are opportunities for serving other people, which are essential components of becoming a disciple. Um, There's another uh, new one that I'm looking to develop This spring, Um, I don't know if you remember last fall, um, around the time of Reformation Sunday, Halloween weekend and or Reformation Sunday, uh, we sponsored a film night here. We watched the movie Luther in commemoration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. I would like to institute a kind of three, four times a year, maybe, a film night where we get together and watch a film and then discuss its implications for the Christian life. Um... And I'm open to uh, suggestions for what kinds of films you think would be good. But I'm not talking about explicitly Christian films. I'm talking about mainstream Hollywood films that have some kind of a sub-Christian text or a sub-subtext of Christian faith and or practice application to us. So um, I think Pastor Andy and I are arguing over which version of Ben Hur to watch. I like the old original. Well, not the old original original, but the 1959 version. He likes the new modern version. Uh, we're going to see which one. Maybe we'll watch both of them. I don't know. It'll be a marathon. Um, but other things, Babette's Feast or Silence or some of those films, um, some of them would be family friendly. Some of them may be for adults. Um, anyway, I'm looking to do that three or four times this year. And uh, so keep your eyes and ears open for uh, announcements about that. And again, if you have ideas or suggestions for films, um, bring them to me and I'd be happy to include those in our list. Um, Corporate worship, what we're doing right now, is another aspect here at Emmaus Road that is a significant way of being shaped and formed into Christ's life. Um, It's a little bit different kind of lifestyle to come together on a Sunday morning instead of always being in the mountains or at sporting events or sleeping in or whatever. We've restructured our schedules and our lives to be here on this Sunday, and that's what disciples do. We restructure our lives to become like Jesus. So as we gather together to sing and to pray, to hear the word being preached, to take communion, those are all elements that are important to our lives as disciples. So corporate worship is an important element of that. And then one other aspect, I've kind of sort of referred to it, and that is discipleship within the home. Um, Let me give an illustration about this and what it can look like for us. Back in 1914 in Russia... There were over 55,000 Russian Orthodox churches, over 100,000 priests and monks. But in 1917, when the Bolshevik Revolution took place, they basically outlawed Christianity or any kind of religious faith. Um, and then, when the Soviet Union was established later, thousands of church buildings were either destroyed or turned into some kind of secular use. Uh, monasteries were taken over and converted. Um, It became impossible or against the law to build a new church, and practicing Orthodox Christians were restricted in their careers, and they weren't allowed membership in the Communist Party, which you needed in order to get a good job. So in effect, there was a great deal of persecution against Christians. Um, And between 1917 and 1935, 130,000 Orthodox priests were arrested, 90,000 of those were put to death. But there's a story that the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, who was a mean and nasty guy, was talking to the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. They still had a, a shallow shell of what the church was, even though there weren't real churches and priests and deacons. Um, and Stalin said to this, the, the church leader, he said, what are you going to do when all of your priests are dead? The bishop answered, well, our catechists or our teachers are not the priests, they are Russian grandmothers. They teach the faith to their grandchildren. And when they all die, their children and their grandchildren will become grandmothers and then teach the faith to their children. That's what Christian faith looks like in the home. That is one of the ways that the Christian faith got started. We didn't have churches to begin with. It was a house kind of a setting. Christian homes were the places where Christian discipleship was practiced. In our context, here's an example of what it might look like. Our life group met a couple of weeks ago, um, right before Christmas, and uh, we had a little nativity set set up <clears throat> in our living room uh, by a chair, and uh, Debbie was playing with little Edith Trout. She's two and a half years old, and um, at some point, in the, they, some point in the evening, they were looking at the nativity set and kind of playing with it, um, and after everybody went home, Debbie mentioned to me kind of casually... Um, that Edith knew the names of the animals, which that's not unusual, children learn their animals, but she also knew members of the human characters. Uh, She knew who baby Jesus was, of course. She knew who Mary was, and she even knew the forgotten member of that family, Joseph. And Debbie said to me, "Um, Kirk and Melissa have been teaching her something, and that is what faith in the family looks like. It's teaching in little tiny pieces names of the nativity characters, Um, our children, the faith, and passing on our faith to our children. That's an example of discipleship taking place in the home, in the family. Parents passing on pieces of their faith to their children. Um, One famous preacher has said that Christianity is not a prosperity gospel, which, contrary to some preaching, but Christianity is a posterity gospel. Uh, We teach Christian faith, and it is passed down through posterity, through our children and our grandchildren in the family. And that is one of the key places for discipleship to occur. It's important to be involved together in the life of faith in our church, but in the family is also where discipleship occurs. Now, we talked about discipleships or uh, in the New Testament, a lot of Paul's letters, you know, open with, he's addressing his letters to the disciples at a certain location, but he also, he usually uses the word saints And we think of saints as being someone high and elevated and super holy, but really, saints was meant originally to be disciples, all of you people who are following Jesus. Um, Or a follower of Jesus is another term, an apprentice or a student. Um, One phrase that I really like is one I came across in another sermon. Um, It's called, we are, as disciples, we are transformed nonconformists. How do you like that for a phrase? Transformed nonconformists. We are transformed, but we don't fit in with the rest of the world. Our calendars, our schedules, our times, our effort are all put towards something else. Um, I'd like to read a few excerpts from that sermon um, to kind of summarize what I've been trying to say about discipleship. This is what this uh, preacher wrote or said. We as Christians have a mandate to be nonconformists. The Apostle Paul, who knew the inner realities of the Christian faith, counseled, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a quote from Romans 2 or twelve two. We are called to be people of conviction, not conformity, of moral nobility, not social respectability. We are commanded to live differently and according to a higher loyalty. The early Christians were nonconformists in the truest sense of the word and they refused to shape their witness according to the patterns of the world. They willingly sacrificed fame, fortune, and life itself in behalf of a cause they knew was right. Their powerful gospel put an end to such barbaric acts as infanticide and the bloody gladiatorial games, and they finally captured the Roman Empire for Jesus Christ. Gradually, however, the church became so entrenched itself in wealth and prestige that it began to dilute the demands of the gospel and began to conform to the ways of the world. And ever since, the church has been a weak and ineffectual trumpet, making uncertain sounds. If the church of Jesus Christ is to regain once more its power, its message, and authentic ring, it must conform only to the demands of the gospel. Now, nonconformity in itself, however, may not necessarily be good and may at times possess neither transforming nor redemptive power. Nonconformity, per se, contains no saving value. Paul, in the last half of that passage, offers a formula of constructive nonconformity. He said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Nonconformity is creative when it embraces a new mental outlook. By opening our lives to God in Christ, we become new creatures. This experience, which Jesus spoke of as the new birth, is essential if we're to be transformed nonconformists. And freed from the cold heartedness that is so often characteristic of just nonconformity. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world with a humble and loving spirit. The transformed nonconformist never yields to the passive sort of patience that is an excuse to do nothing. This very transformation saves him from speaking irresponsible words that estrange without reconciling. And from making hasty judgments that are blind to the necessity of progress. He recognizes that change will not come overnight, but he works as though it is an imminent possibility. This hour in history needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. Our planet teeters on the brink of nuclear annihilation. Dangerous passions of pride and hatred and selfishness are enthroned in our lives. Truth lies prostrate on the ground and people worship false gods of nationalism and materialism. The saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority but through the creative maladjustment of a nonconforming minority that's the church. Now honesty impels me to admit that transformed nonconformity is always costly and never altogether comfortable. It might mean walking through the valley of the shadow of suffering. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we will wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy-packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves its mark upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way that comes only through suffering. We must make a choice. Will we continue to march to the drumbeat of conformity and respectability? Or will we risk criticism and abuse and march to the soul-saving music of eternity. More than ever before, we are today challenged by the words of yesterday. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That sermon was written 52 years ago, almost to the day, 1966. It was preached at Ebenezer Baptist Church by Martin Luther King Jr. Those words ring true today still for us, I think, and we are called to be transformed nonconformists. 2 Peter 1 says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you can participate in the divine nature and having escaped the corruption in the world caused by its evil desires. I want to close by inviting you to join me in a prayer and I suggest that if you... Pray this out loud. We have, we'll, we'll pray, I'll pray it out loud, and you can join me in reciting it out loud if you want. But it's a covenant renewal prayer. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, um, had this prayer prayed every year. And in, in England, they prayed every New Year's Eve um, together when they come together for worship service. Um, in the United States, it's not quite so common, but it is becoming more and more widely used. And I would invite you to pray this with me. And it's basically a vow and a prayer. For us committing ourselves to God, to be God's disciples. Um, It begins by saying, Christ has many services to be done. Some are easy, others are difficult. Some bring honor, others bring reproach. Some are suitable to our natural inclinations and interests, but others are contrary to that. Yet the power to do all these things is given to us in Christ, who strengthens us so now I would invite you to pray this prayer as you're willing to and if you want to with me. We have that on the screen. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, or let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven, amen.